0: Well, it's good to see you guys. Welcome back uh, to the Lord's Day. I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Yes. Believe it or not, we are moving on to another chapter. To that point, um, you know, today's a day where it would be so great if the Ellises were here. Usually the Ellis's are like right there or right there. Uh, the Ellis's, uh, and s- several of you may, this may be true of you as well, but I just know that the Ellis's have been in my class since I started teaching, I, don't, I mean, a long time ago. And there was like three of us in the class. I mean, it was a small little class and they were on the front row, you know, the same as they've always been. So I was going to throw out, you know, who, who has been in this First Corinthians study from the very beginning. Has anybody been here since we started in chapter 1? That would be kind of, okay, there's any other several of you. Okay, so good. So those of you that have either been in the study or just are rather familiar with the 1 Corinthians uh, letter, what are some of the problems that the Apostle Paul has had to contend with over the course of this letter before we even get to chapter 12 today? Just throw them out. Where do we start? Divisions. divisions. This overarching problem. We talked about that even at some length in chapter 11 with this matter of divisions that were manifesting themselves around the Lord's table. What else? Perverted. Perversion in the life of the church. Yeah. What else? Immaturity. Immaturity. I can't speak to you as mature or as spiritual um, is what he says. What else? Lack of discernment on gray areas, Christian liberty, uh, those kinds of things. Arrogance, pride, spiritual pride, being enamored with surface matters as opposed to substance matters. All these things are kind of, you know, correlations of, of common things that we've already mentioned The fact of the matter is is that when you look at this letter to the the Corinthians, what we've talked about before and what we see over and over and over again is that this was a letter that was primarily addressed to believers who were struggling to work out their salvation with fear and trembling and maintain a faithful witness uh, in their community and maintain faithfulness and fidelity to the doctrines or, as Paul talks about, the traditions that he had passed on to them. Uh, They had become confused, they had become enamored with their, uh, I guess, their legacy belief system and their cultural influences. In fact, if you look at the Corinth, uh, the church in Corinth, and you look at the Corinthians in particular, the kinds of things that they are struggling with in this letter are the same kinds of things that believers struggle with today. Things like reputation, how they will look before the world, wanting to be recognized, wanting to fit in, wanting to have uh, uh, some type of group that they can identify with and that will affirm them. All these different things that draw out in us some of the worst elements of our yet unsanctified flesh that we are called to mortify day in and day out. So it stands to reason that when we arrive at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in this lengthy section in chapters 12 through 14, on this matter of, you might say, spiritual gifts, although we'll unpack that a little bit more as we get into the study, it stands to reason that the theme of dealing with problems is going to continue. In fact, this entire section, as I mentioned last week, I believe, is one of primarily correction, it is one of primarily redirection. It is one of primarily sort of reorienting their theological framework around the church and around life in the body of Christ and around even the work of the Holy Spirit among them. So this is, a, this is going to be a study that's going to center our attention for sure on spiritual gifts in the life of the church. But it's primarily a study in how one can go astray from what God has called us to in the use of the gifts that he's given us in the life of the church. So we need to make sure that we kind of keep that frame in mind as we kind of step into this study. As you may have experienced in the course of your life, this issue of spiritual gifts is one that is often a source of great confusion for believers, regardless of whether or not you are a part of a church like ours that that is not oriented around you know the the sign gifts and tongues and healings and all that kind of thing, uh, or if you're part of a church that is is like that, they, there, there's much confusion around this that oftentimes centers around the individual believer's understanding of their particular spiritual gifts, what they are, how to identify them, how to put them to work, how to what's how do I know what my spiritual gift or gifts are and how do I set about to be using them effectively? There's been all kinds of training courses and tests that you can take to identify your spiritual gifts. You have like, you know, like in, in sort of corporate, corporate America or, or in education, you'll have these uh, sort of these personality profiles that can be given to try to identify, you know, what are your primary bent's are you a you know there's the DSC there's the I don't know there's several different kinds that uh, Myers Briggs there's all these different kinds of tests that you can take and it kind of puts you into some kind of predominant category and then sort of maybe a minor so you're a lot of this and a little bit of that and a lot of times these spiritual gifts kinds of assessments are kind of like that you know trying to kind of align spiritual giftedness with temperament and personality traits and interests and natural bents and then say, well, you must have the gift of this. So the fact is that there's a lot of confusion that centers around this particular matter. And obviously, we are not, probably most of us, or at least most of us, if not all of us, are not, um, it's not lost on us how some of the more Uh, troubling excesses in the demonstration or manifestation, quote-unquote, of spiritual gifts uh, can produce all kinds of chaos in the life of a church, and even grave disappointment and frustration with one's own spiritual journey when expectations are not met or when the hype of an emotionally driven and emotionally charged kind of spiritual experience kind of wanes. There's all kinds of, of, of trouble around this issue, and there's all kinds of confusion around this matter of spiritual gifts. And, and of course, the, the, the excesses only kind of exacerbate the problem in our minds, I know that you guys come here Sunday in and Sunday out, and one of your primary interests is that I would bring you up to date on current events and give you spiritual insight around that. I know that's your primary focus, so I don't want to rob you of that privilege this morning. In a Charisma Magazine article entitled, Prophetic Revelation, Russian Spacecraft Crash Fulfills Detailed Prophecy. This was posted on September 11th, 2023, so this is current. I'm not going to give you old news. (laughs) This is what the article says. In a recent and astounding turn of events, a Russian spacecraft's crash into the moon has not only captured the world's attention, but has also stirred the hearts of those who believe that God still speaks through prophecy. Now, I have to just ask the question, have any of you heard about this? Not the prophecy piece, but the Russians. I hadn't heard anything about it, so this is brand new to me. So I'm getting getting sort of a, a two for the price of one. I'm getting the news about the Russian spacecraft, but also the prophecy around it, which is awesome. The article goes on. Two months before this unprecedented incident, Troy Black, a Christian speaker, received a word from the Lord that remarkably foretold the crash with incredible accuracy. On June 23rd, 2023, during a live streamed message, Black shared his vision of a space shuttle orbiting the Earth, coupled with a message from God, quote, rocket ship, a crash landing, an orbital wreck, an orbital, uh, excuse me, an orbiter dislodged and broken open, a shuttle in pieces, end quote. These words might have seemed cryptic at the time, but their significance would soon become clear. Fast forward to August 19, 2023, when BBC News reported the crash of Russia's Luna 25 spacecraft into the moon. The spacecraft had spiraled into an uncontrolled orbit before the crash occurred. This accident marked Russia's first moon mission in nearly half a century, and it ended in a devastating failure. What is truly remarkable is how Black's prophecy, given by the Holy Spirit, aligns with the events that unfolded. The mention of, quote, rocket ship, and quote, crash landing, and quote, orbital wreck, and quote, orbiter dislodged in his vision eerily parallels the actual crash. The spacecraft, after encountering issues during its pre-landing orbit, crashed into the moon's surface, effectively dislodging it from its orbital trajectory. The prophecy's accuracy extends further. The catastrophic failure was of an unmanned spacecraft, which mirrors God's message to Black. Quote, no man down, everyone will be just fine except for one person. Slight injuries, nothing major, end quote. The spirit-inspired aspect of this prophecy is that it came two months before the actual event, leaving no room for human manipulation or foresight. Black emphasizes that he did not possess any special knowledge or powers. He merely shared what he believed God had revealed to him. For those who question the authenticity of such revelations and divine communication, Black provides a twofold answer. First and foremost, he underscores the importance of believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pointing back to the pillars of Christianity, Black explains how Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross to atone for the sins of humanity. Embracing this message forms the foundation for a personal connection with God. Secondly, he asserts that people can indeed hear from God today, emphasizing the significance of a genuine relationship with the Creator. This relationship allows individuals to communicate with God and receive insights, guidance, and prophecies similar to the biblical accounts of divine revelations. In the midst of this extraordinary occurrence, Black's prophetic revelation serves as a testament to the enduring belief in God's ability to communicate with his people. It invites us to explore the depths of faith, affirming that the Lord still speaks to those who are willing to listen and believe. Did you happen to catch what I saw as the underlying assumption of this article? You see it right at the beginning of the article in the second paragraph, when the writer says, Troy Black, a Christian speaker, received a word from the Lord. Further into the article, we see the assumption reinforced when it says, quote, what is truly remarkable is how Black's prophecy given by the Holy Spirit aligns with the events that unfolded. It also speaks of God's, quote, message to Black. Black. And then the article says, the spirit-inspired aspect of this prophecy. On and on and on. And then the concluding paragraph kind of puts a gigantic exclamation point on this underlying assumption. In the midst of this extraordinary occurrence, Black's prophetic revelation serves as a testament to the enduring belief in God's ability to communicate with his people affirming that the Lord still speaks to those who are willing to listen and believe. The underlying assumption here is that this is emphatically, invariably, and unquestionably God speaking to this man about a Russian satellite crash into the moon. There's no question about it. There's no need to test it. There's no need to question it. This is a prophetic message from God This is a word from the Lord. This is a Holy Spirit-inspired prophecy. The language that this writer invokes is the language of unquestioned presupposition that God is directly communicating with this man about this Russian satellite crash. Now, we might look at this, or someone might, from the outside looking in, say, well, You know, this is a pretty extreme and even a rather absurd, you know, example of what you might consider to be excesses in the the sort of the more charismatic belief of gifts and the gift of prophecy in particular that we're going to look at in depth in our study. But let's just look at how Charisma Magazine describes itself on its website. To passionate, spirit-filled Christians, Charisma is the leading charismatic media source that inspires them to radically change their world. Since 1975, Charisma Magazine has been a trusted source of news, teaching, and inspiration to help spread the gospel of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. As the voice of the charismatic movement, Charisma has steadily combined award-winning news coverage of what the Holy Spirit is doing around the world with relevant, timely messages from leaders in the Spirit-empowered community. Charisma Magazine has been around for a long time, and it has been a prominent outpost of this kind of promotion of these kinds of beliefs. Some other data points for us to kind of consider as we think about all these things. Recent studies estimate the total number of Pentecostals and Charismatics worldwide at just over 500 million. With 80 million in North America... 141 million in Latin America, 135 million in Asia, 126 million in Africa, and 38 million in Europe. This is second only worldwide to Roman Catholicism. It's massive. Massive. And even in otherwise conservative, reformed theological circles, this kind of door is open. Wayne Grudem... If you are, have any experience in theology or, you know, systematic theology, any kind of, any kind of experience in conservative reform uh, systematics, you, you've heard of Wayne Grudem. Even just tangentially, you probably have heard of Wayne Grudem. And he is a well-known, long-standing conservative reform theologian. Professor of New Testament Studies in, in, at, at uh, Phoenix Seminary. Listen to what he says about prophecy in particular. Prophecy, he says, in ordinary New Testament churches was not equal to Scripture in authority, but was simply a very human and sometimes partially mistaken report of something the Holy Spirit brought to someone's mind. In other words, prophecy consists of telling something God has spontaneously brought to mind. Much more commonly, prophet and prophecy were used of ordinary Christians who spoke not with absolute divine authority, but simply to report something God had laid on their hearts or brought to their minds. There are many indications in the New Testament that this ordinary gift of prophecy had authority less than that of the Bible and even less than that of recognized Bible teaching in the early church, End quote. How confusing is that? There's some second order version of prophecy that is actually a word given to someone by the Holy Spirit to pass on to someone else, but it might not be accurate. In other words, the standard of, for example, Old Testament prophecy doesn't apply here. Don't take the New Testament prophet as we're seeing it manifested out to the the city gates and stone them because that's not the same standard because this is a different definition of prophecy. And so now the door is open for people confessing believers to engage in what they believe to be and are affirmed in words of prophecy, speaking prophetic, prophetic utterances that are carrying by virtue of, for example, Charisma Magazine's publication on a particular instance of this, carrying the weight of supernatural, Holy Spirit-inspired authority without any accountability for consistent accuracy, consistent reliability. The degree of confusion and even promotion of heresy and the exposure of many people in this movement, in their their affinity for this kind of extravagant display of spirituality, absent of day-to-day faithfulness in the basics of Christian virtue, it's rampant in churches around the world. The thing that's also notable for us is that we are susceptible fundamentally to the same kind of conditions in our own thinking that leads people to embrace this kind of doctrinal perspective, this kind of practice in in church life. One of the roots of this and this is what was in play in Corinth as well, is this tendency to elevate subjective experience over objective revelation. You think about how powerful your subjective experience is in informing and influencing your conclusions and convictions, even if they're temporary, even if you have to right-size them by truth, even if you have to go through a period where you're constantly sort of preaching the gospel to yourself again and reminding yourself of biblical passages. The very fact that we have to engage in that struggle is evidence that this is a powerful, powerful challenge for us as believers. Our subjective experience and the corresponding emotion and the emotional thinking that gets framed up in our minds can, at least for a period of time, become absolutely authoritative for us. And at times, that can become extremely dangerous and make us vulnerable to all kinds of error. John MacArthur, in his book Strange Fire, says that by elevating the authority of experience over the authority of Scripture, the charismatic movement has destroyed the church's immune system uncritically granting free access to every imaginable form of heretical teaching and practice. This is is the point. All you need to do is go back to the garden and the account of Eve's encounter with the serpent, Satan of old, and then fast forward from that to Jesus' temptations, and what you will see is the timeless reality, the timeless principle in play, and that is that objective truth gets substituted for subjective experience. The appeal to us is to trust more in our senses and in our sensibilities than to trust in what God has objectively revealed. That was the nature of the temptation of Christ. Over and over again, Jesus was hungry. Turn these rocks into food. Takes them to a high place. Look at all of this. Look, look, all the kingdoms of the world can be yours. Appealing to Senses our physical, material senses and sensibilities. This is a powerful influencer of our thinking that constantly has to be challenged and thwarted and corrected by objective, revealed truth that we find in Scripture. And so when you come to, for example, Corinth, or when you enter into any other church in our day that is promoting these kinds of doctrines, what you find is an emphasis not on reining in your emotions and your emotional-driven thinking and, and the inclination of you to elevate your personal experience and your personal sense of things over and above revealed, objective, testable truth. That, that, that tendency is what's in play and what's in view in Corinth and what, it's what's in view in churches today. And the, and the, and the thrust in those environments is not to... Take hold of objective truth, but to let yourself go. Give yourself over to the Spirit's work and the Spirit's move. One outworking of this in the life of otherwise faithful, theologically conservative believers is this reality of spiritual discontentment. We can find ourselves in a place where we're like, isn't there more? You know, shouldn't I be experiencing more? God feels so far away right now. I have a friend who just seems to be constantly so on fire for the Lord and and constantly talking about these great works of healing and this word of knowledge that they received and this, this pastor that prophesied over them and they're just constantly on fire. Am I missing something? When I was... A younger man, in my college years, I found myself in that kind of place. By the way, this place of spiritual discontentment is really spiritual pride. We can talk about that, but you unpack that a little bit, and you see that what's going on there is pride. After all, discontentment is what? You're free to eat of all the trees of the garden. Just don't eat of this one. Well, I want this one. That's that's pride. I, I deserve this. I'm entitled to have the knowledge of good and evil and be like God. That's what I'm entitled to. That's spiritual discontentment, which is spiritual pride. I found myself in that place in my college years, and there was a church in Waco at Baylor University where I was in school, and it was called Highland Baptist Church. We affectionately referred to it as High Hands Baptist Church. You get the idea, right? But I'll never forget that season of time, as I look back on it, and there was, there was a desire on my part to experience something. But the objective benefit of hindsight allows me to easily look back at that time and say, I was longing for something subjective that I could then point to as an experience that I had with God that would then point to me as being uniquely spiritual. Meanwhile, I could look at all kinds of points of my life on a day-to-day basis where I was lacking in discipline. I wasn't prayerful. I wasn't faithful in evangelism. I wasn't faithful in working out and bearing the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I mean, like my life was not characterized by steady, day-to-day deployment of the graces that God had already granted me in Christ Jesus and the working out of biblical virtue that I knew I needed to be faithful in. But I wanted something more. I wanted to experience something deeper. And so I found myself confused and discontent, seeking something, Longing for something. And in this church environment, as I look back on it with more objectivity and the benefit of hindsight, what I can recall is that there was a great emphasis on the experiential. Tremendous emphasis on the experiential. That easily appealed to younger people like me at that time. appeals or references to biblical truth were largely in support of the experience. Largely to sort of undergird the emphasis on the experience with some kind of objective you know, reference to, to Scripture. Rather than Scripture being the one that's instructing our hearts and our minds so that we can walk in faithfulness and so that we have what we need to be able to battle against our susceptibility to subjectivism. Emotionalism. Confusion, discontent, discontentment, prioritizing subjective experience and emotional, temporal experience. But when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, what you see right away is that the Apostle Paul is going after those very things. In fact, let's just read the first three verses together. Verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. How about that? That's where he starts. I do not want you to be unknowing, unaware, ignorant. It's translated a number of different ways. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. There's, there's the challenge. That you and I are susceptible to being led astray. Now, how is someone going to be led astray by a mute idol? The only way that that can happen is for us to infuse that experience with our own subjective, emotional stirring. It's an idol. It's a statue. It is inanimate. It is stone or it is wood. But no, Paul says, you, you were led astray. That's your susceptibility, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to unpack this much more significantly in the days and we, in the weeks ahead. But just for the sake of an initial observation here, I want you to notice the Apostle Paul in these opening verses is emphasizing his driving concern, which is to eliminate ignorance... To, to eliminate confusion, to move the Corinthian believers from a place of being unaware, uninformed, confused, ignorant, to a place of understanding and clarity. And the caution that's there is that you have already proven yourself susceptible to being led into error by your own devices. Because an idol is mute. It does not, will not, and has never spoken anything. So you were led astray, however you were led, into deception, into confusion. But I want you to understand. The test of whether or not there is a word from the Holy Spirit being spoken... Is an objective measure. It is is a test of objective accordance with revealed truth. No one speaking in the Spirit would ever say anything blasphemous, anything in error. In this particular case, Jesus is accursed. That's an absurd notion. That anyone claiming to speak in the Spirit, that they would be susceptible to saying anything other than what is in complete and thorough accord with what is revealed about the Spirit and the Son and the Father. The test then is, does it align with a true confession of revealed truth? This statement, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit, this is a profound statement that we will unpack it uh, next week. But think of it this way for just the current moment. Do you remember the account when Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And then he narrowed the question down to just his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He made a confession about Jesus Christ's identity as the incarnate Son of God, as as God incarnate, in other words. And what did Jesus say to him? Blessed are you, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Spirit. But the Spirit of God, my Father in heaven, revealed this to you. This is the the point that he's making here. The point that he's making here is that the test for genuine, authentic, spiritual experience is an objective measure. it's It's a testable, verifiable measure. Not something that's purely subjective. You have the affirmation of the Son of God affirming that He was Revealed this by the Father Himself through the Spirit. There is this affirmation of Peter's confession. This is now objective truth revealed. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is saying, No one can say, no one can make a genuine confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, an authentic, thoroughgoing confession except in the Holy Spirit. And we're going to unpack that doctrinally. As we go forward, but just keep that in mind. This is, this is the Apostle Paul's introductory statement about this whole study of spiritual things. Note, for example, now concerning spiritual gifts. A little sort of grammatical or technical note here. Gifts is not in the original Greek there. It just is the word for spiritual. And it can be translated, now concerning spiritual matters. Or now concerning spiritual persons. The reason why this is translated gifts, and it's not, it's not a, a bad translation. In fact, it, it might be the, the appropriate translation. If you go to chapter 12 uh, and look at verse 14, sorry, chapter 14, I'm sorry. when you start in chapter 14, you see pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Right there is the same word without the word gift in Greek. Gifts are are in other places in the text, the, the term charis, but here it's again just spiritual. But notice what follows, especially that you may prophesy. So this is a translation decision to include or insert gifts here in the beginning in chapter 12 because the larger subject matter is dealing with this matter of the manifestation of gifts, of gifts of the Spirit. But I think that the broader implication here in these opening verses is the Apostle Paul drawing a distinction, a stark contrast between unspiritual people and truly spiritual people. And unspiritual people would manifest quote-unquote spiritual gifts in ways that are not in alignment with objective revelation, but spiritual people would manifest spiritual gifts that are in alignment or in accord with objective revelation. And this is the driving concern with much of what we see in the contemporary sort of charismatic Pentecostal movement. Listen to what MacArthur says, in the book Strange Fire. The modern charismatic and Pentecostal movements have fostered an unhealthy preoccupation with supposed manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power. Committed charismatics talk incessantly about phenomena, emotions, and the latest wave or sensation. They seem to have comparatively little, sometimes nothing, to say about Christ, his atoning work, or the historical facts of the gospel. The charismatic fixation with the Holy Spirit's supposed work is false honor. Jesus said, When the Helper comes, whom, shall, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So when the Holy Spirit becomes the focal point of the church's message, his true work is undermined. I want you to think back to the article that I read at the beginning. In what way does someone espousing a prophetic revelation about a Russian satellite crashing into the moon testify of the Lord, of the gospel, of the atoning work of Christ? Furthermore, how does that promote the common good in the body of Christ? Now, to this Man's credit that I don't know, this, this man who was referenced in the article, apparently he did convey some type of clear gospel presentation as an important thing to consider in all of this. But the problem is, is that that's mixed with an emphasis on the fact that God does still have the ability. I love that term, God has the ability to communicate with his people. I, I, the language that is sometimes employed is, is stunning to me. Aren't you thankful that God has the ability to communicate still to his people? But the point is is that the focus becomes on the experience, the the identification with a, a phenomenological kind of experience, rather than something about the atoning work of Christ or the glory of God. And it opens the door to undermining the very nature and work of the Spirit of God Himself, as Jesus described in the Gospels. MacArthur goes on to say, The Holy Spirit found in the vast majority of charismatic teaching and practice bears no resemblance to the true Spirit of God as revealed in Scripture. The real Holy Spirit is not an electrifying current of ecstatic energy, a mind-numbing babbler of irrational speech, or a cosmic genie who indiscriminately grants self-centered wishes for health and wealth. The true spirit of God does not cause his people to bark like dogs or laugh like hyenas. He does not knock them backward to the ground in an unconscious stupor. He does not incite them to worship in chaotic and uncontrollable ways. And he certainly does not accomplish his kingdom work through false prophets, fake healers, and fraudulent televangelists. By inventing a Holy Spirit of idolatrous imaginations, the modern charismatic movement offers strange fire that has done incalculable harm to the body of Christ. Claiming to focus on the third member of the Trinity, it has, in fact, profaned his name and denigrated his true work. The challenge that we have to consider here when we look at what's taking place in Corinth, when we try to understand the proper place of spiritual gifts in the life of each individual believer and manifest in ministry in the life of the church, is that we understand the the propensity that we have to undermine the Spirit's actual work and replace it with our desire for something for ourselves. Some kind of experience. Some kind of sort of secret nugget of knowledge. Some kind of particular insight that affirms us in some way. And the greater challenge, and this is where I refer you back to Genesis chapter 3. This is where it gets really stark. From the moment of the curse, what you have now in the world are revelation of actual truth from God and satanic doctrine. And that's it. There's there's no sort of happy middle ground. This is what I find to be so incredibly troubling by thinking about the position of someone like Wayne Grudem. I want you to imagine for a moment a scenario in which I decided, you know, Wayne Grudem, I love his systematic theology, and he's obviously a formidable, uh, knowledgeable student of Scripture, has been studying the Scriptures for decades, far longer than I have. I mean, just by, by miles and miles and miles, published over and over again, highly respected and highly regarded for decades. And so my attention is drawn to this this definition of prophecy as an example. And so, because someone comes along and claims that they've heard from the Lord, and they have a word from the Lord that they need to convey to, for example, this class. And we come to discover that It was this statement that included elements of sort of biblical reference or biblical principle and then infused with sort of conjecture and sort of fuzzy, undiscernible statements about this thing or that thing or that person or that pain or that future thing or whatever. But prophecy, New Testament prophecy... Is not held to the same standard as Old Testament prophecy. Do you know that that's not even the issue for a church like ours? Do you understand the scrutiny that anyone has to sort of be under to just teach a lesson anywhere in the life of the church? To be standing before third graders in Sunday school teaching scripture and Bible study to them, community group leaders. The level of scrutiny that we go through to try to make sure that anyone who is standing before any of our people in any kind of position of spiritual authority, whether it's with a kindergartner or whether it's with a senior adult, the, the kind of scrutiny that that person has to kind of undergo, the kind of time that they have to spend engaged in the life of the church, sort of proving out the faithfulness of their life and their ability to articulate sound doctrine, I mean, it's it's significant. Why in the world would I put someone in front of this class who has kind of a word from the Lord, but let's not hold them to too strict an account? There's a door that gets opened up here for reasons it's hard for me to fathom, other than some effort to try to imagine or interpret what the Apostle Paul is teaching or conveying about prophecy here in First Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. But more specifically, if you pay attention to some of the writing and some of the things you could see on YouTube and other, otherwise, Q&A panels and whatnot, it is largely about trying to align yourself experientially with the text not understand cognitively what's being taught what we're going to find as we work through this this passage is we're going to find the apostle paul greatly concerned about your mind and greatly concerned about what is clear and intelligible and understandable by the people gathered together in the church but even more significantly, people who might be coming in from the outside. This emphasis on understanding and on knowing and on intelligibility and on clarity is prominent in this entire study. And then there is the matter of unity in the body of Christ. The thing that I also want us to keep in mind as we work our way through this study is that we need to understand spiritual gifts. We need to be operating and using the gifts that God's given us. We need to be faithful stewards of the gifts that God's given us. Because that is the means by which the church is built up, is trained and instructed, is helped, is supported, is organized, is cared for, and anytime a church finds itself anemic in this area, the whole church is anemic. And the faithful fruitfulness of the church is undermined significantly. We don't want to be those like the Corinthians who are, are, have been led astray by dumb idols, who are led astray by things that aren't really able to speak God's truth, who aren't really able to convey God's revelation. John Calvin says, Let us learn from this passage how great is the blindness of the human mind when it is without the illumination of the Holy Spirit inasmuch as it stands in amazement at dumb idols and cannot rise higher in searching after God, nay more it is led by Satan as if it were a brute. We need to be guarded against any kind of deception in this whole arena. And we need to recognize that any kind of subjective tendency is a, a potential pathway toward demonic doctrine. Not toward just a little bit of being off course. Because there's only two kinds of, of revelation, of, of, of communication, of utterance. It's satanic or it's revelation from God. And we need to be trained in the truth of God's word. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed.